What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I'm Mark Stein, as always, a enormous titanic size thank you to everyone who supports this podcast either on patreon or in the bestseller academy now if you want to support the podcast you if you sign up you, you do the ten dollar a month option you get access to deep dives a go-go i mean we're talking hours and hours and hours of extra stuff so it's talking about i don't know TikTok and screenwriting and forensics and blurbs and uh, all sorts of amazing stuff. We've got a great one on police procedurals. If you listen to this because you want to know about crime, all sorts of great stuff. So go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support, sign up, you get access to all that stuff right away. If you want to sign up to the Academy, now the doors are opening soon, I believe, Mr. D. Tell them about that. Yeah, the doors are open. So folks, we're coming up to the end of the year. Big, big time of review of your writing. Have you really made the most of this last year or has procrastination or things or life got in the way as it does for so many of us? Well, the Academy is the answer to your prayers, really. It is a way of coming into a community, declaring that you're going to do this and somehow fit around your busy life if you are working or your kids or if you're not and you're retired and you've just thought, you know, where's life going? And I'm so busy in retirement, but you want to write that book, then the Academy is the place to go. So pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com and register interest now. There are limited spaces. We have to usually close it off early because there's so much demand, but um, we're opening the doors a bit early and we want to hear about your your writing goals and dreams. And we're here to support you in the Academy next year. So do do that, sir. So Mr. Stay, how how are you doing today? Is it, uh, you, got, you got some... Uh, chilly weather now i guess the garden must be getting uh closed up is it the missus is closing up the garden is she for the well, winter actually, thanks to climate change <laughs> no <laughs> you're getting a fresh harvest already exactly yeah um but uh you know i rarely venture outside anyway so you know i'm always stuck in here um but uh yeah i'm getting lots of done lots of stuff done i'm working on lots of projects at once probably too many at once probably stretched a bit thin but um it's all going well how's the non-fiction going mr dale oh, me to ask it's a gathering process. I'm in right. that stage where, and I wish I, and this is a tip for anyone starting a big project, get your Scrivener file or whatever it is that you're going to create, get it set up before you start writing any notes. Because what I'm now doing is I've I spent so much time writing, handwriting notes, recording things into my phone, uh, having meetings with people and, and looking at transcripts, doing my own research. And there's just so much information. And I've suddenly said, right, I'm, I'm stopping it, drawing a line, and I'm going to put it all into Scrivener. So I'm basically, oh, it's just so, it's massive. It's it's looking like back to reality, Mark, honestly. Do you remember when we had all of right, those yeah, different yeah. files? 
So, but it's feeling so good to start putting things into order. And I know this is a big, a big stage of the project, but I want to get everything. And and it's kind of like, it's starting to kind of self-organize. I think you have to go through that process to really start to see See the shape of it. See the shape yeah. of it. Yeah, it's funny because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really hard to sit at the beginning of the project, isn't it? And go, right, here's my outline. And you write, it doesn't really work like that because you mm. have so many different ideas. And and in some ways, a bit like, I've always learned this with, with fiction, that the theme of the book comes whilst you're writing the book. And you may only discover it at the end. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. finding with a nonfiction project that's kind of a big series-based nonfiction with a core theme that you're, you're trying to work out what that first book's going to look like structure-wise. But the only way I can get to that is by gathering and then almost, it's almost like doing an edit and subtracting stuff from what I've got to say, right, what's what's the meat here? What's the stuff that can be put to one side or can be pushed to a, to a, a later book or project? But fascinating. And I love it. I actually really like it. I've got my little writing spot now. I've got my little good, space good, good. where I sit good. with a laptop and... It's feeling great. I tell you what I uh, mentioned a few weeks ago. You mentioned a scalpel. Uh, yeah. I've been working on a TV pitch for a TV series. Oh, and yeah. It's been great. I'm, Do you like it? not sponsored by them or anything no. like that. This is a genuine recommendation. Yeah. Really, really good. Such a doddle to use as well. It's so um, simple. That's what yeah. I love about it. It's like you don't have to, you can get, you know, it's, it's good to watch a 20-minute video on it, but there's actually not that much to yeah. it in terms yeah, of but it's options. really easy really really easy and instinctive to use so and if yeah, you, have you managed rec. no worries and have you managed to get it in have you played around with importing it into or connecting it with scrivener as well because it automatically... no because what we're i can't say too much about giving it away but it's it's just so that i could show to my creative partner right the shape so the shape of a thing yeah and we could say oh okay that's great so and now we're gonna easier. yeah isn't yeah. visual so much easier than trying to explain something to someone mm. Yeah, definitely. Just laying something out and yeah, brilliant stuff. Excellent. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Well, we have a humdinger and a quite a long interview today, don't we? So come on, Mark. See if you can even start to summarize this interview. This this (laughs) might I know I've probably said this a few times, but this might certainly I think it might be my favorite interview of the year. Uh, and I could sit and listen to Graham Hurley all day long perhaps over a nice long lunch we talk about publishing lunches amongst other things uh but graham hurley is the author of i think 49 books and counting uh he returns with his latest second world war thriller the blood of others he talks about that he also takes us through his extraordinary career uh, and it's a really entertaining chat uh, it's a bit sweary in places so if you've got you know kids in the car with you or whatever be warned there's there's not excessively but there's a few uh, f-bombs in there um also full disclosure i sold graham's books when i was at orion so you're going to hear some names one of them is uh, malcolm who is malcolm edwards who was the managing director of orion books and has this genius for spotting bestsellers uh and also simon spanton who Edited my book, The End of Magic, but uh, also at Orion, he worked at Gollantz, uh, and he did occasionally edit crime books as well uh, and other outside of the genre books. Simon was the person who came down to me one day when I was working at Orion, gave me a manuscript and said, new author, Jarba Crombie, I think you'll like him. I was like, oh, really? Uh, yes, so <laughs> Simon gave me that. Um, so you can hear those names. Uh, we discuss, amongst many other things, we discuss something called soft linkage, Uh, We discuss how a writer who hates crime fiction ended up writing a successful crime series and how how Graham's writing career began 
while searching for the Titanic. Yes, really. (laughs) You have to wait for the end for that one, folks. (laughs) So let's dive in and listen to the consummate storyteller. It is Graham Hurley, chatting with Mark. Graham Hurley, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today, sir? Terrific. Absolutely brilliant. Enjoying the weather. Been for two swims. All good. Brilliant. You've done more already. It's not even lunchtime than most people have done in a day. But we are here to talk about your incredible new book, The Blood of Others, which is the eighth book in a series chronicling the Second World War, and it has recurring characters. And I want to talk about that whole series in a minute. But this one is about the Dieppe Raid in 1942, Operation Jubilee, which was a disaster. What was it about this event that, that, that made you think there was a a novel in this. Tell us, tell us what drew you to this event. Well, to, to some degree, I, I have to look back over the series. So we're talking uh, books one to seven. Now, I'm not going to go through them, but by and large, they uh, each individual book covered a fair amount of time for various sort of plot reasons. And I'd always been fascinated by um, the the what, what they termed the Dieppe raid. It was an expedition. It, it was a an away day essay in in, in sustained violence. And it seemed to offer, and I first came across it when I was working in television, and and I, for whatever reason, I'd acquired the responsibility and the challenge and everything else to do the big anniversary World War II documentaries for ITV. So you can imagine it starts with Dunkirk, it ends with D-Day, and we did both ends of the war. But in the middle of the war, there was this one little expedition on the 19th of August that, as you've just said, ended in complete catastrophe. And the reasons for that have always fascinated me. And what I wanted to do was to make a film about it. Now, that never came to pass because TVS, for whom I was working, they lost the franchise. But then I started this this series of World War II-based novels. And uh, at the end of uh, book seven, it occurred to me that the the clever thing to do would be to go back and readdress that or re interfere with that itch that has never gone away mm-hmm. to to do something about Dieppe. And, that, and that's what I've done. Um, and uh, the, the, the very tightness of the time frame, and obviously I expand it backwards and forwards to give you lots and lots of, uh, of, of colour, of context, of character, etc. But the core of the story is very sadly simplicity itself. And, and it, it revolves, <laughs> what a witty title, in spilling of the blood of others. Mm. Wonderful. Uh, it's What I love about this as well is when, when you're dealing with World War II novels, particularly military ones, there's a danger. It could be a whole bunch of exposition. It could be generals barking orders. But what I love about your books is they have this humanity to them, these wonderful characters that uh, reminds me, I'm, I'm, I remember reading people like Len Dayton and stuff like that, and, it, and that you know put, puts humans into the war like that. I mean, for example, in this we've got, uh, and this isn't a spoiler, this is early on, there's a character called Schultz, and he's spying on French fortifications, but his cover is he's a bird watcher. But he really does love birds. He even does an impersonation of one of them. And suddenly he's not just a spy, he's a human being. Where are you finding those little details of character? Are you drawing them from history or are you bringing them to the characters yourself? Well, that's a very interesting question, Mark. And and and, and you all know because you work for Orion and, and we, we have back history between us. And I've now done 49 books. And I have lost count of the number of characters I've invented, <laughs> but I try very hard in terms of fictional characters to 
to to to to to, to draw on the page people of dare I say it rare distinction and that doesn't that's no 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 tribute to their moral qualities that's just mm. to make them different the one to the other yeah now what for me is very special about the challenge that this series the spoils of war series or collection as we now call it offers me as the writer is the freedom to be able to mix real characters some of the giants of the war and some of the not so gigantic figures in the war but real people Mm. Uh, with people that I've completely invented. Now, you, you mentioned Schultz. Schultz appeared in, in uh, ha- has been there in the series from the start, and that is a tribute to Schultz. I mean, he, he's a representative of, 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 of one, one of those uh, up-for-it, ultra-violent, Sturmabteilung uh, Nazis, the brown shirts that, that you know, bloodied the, the streets of Berlin in the 20s and the 30s. Um, came to realise probably sooner than most of the guys he was fighting with or against that that, that, he, that they were heading for dictatorship, and and this was a Germany, a Reich, in the first place, a thousand-year Reich that was being bossed by gangsters, and this wasn't, despite his background, this wasn't to, to his liking, and so he he joins the uh, um, the Abwehr. The, the, the military intelligence organization under a fascinating man, real guy, appears in the next book in depth called Admiral Canaris. And the, the, the trick here is that these are, dare I say, old style Germans. They have a conscience. They know the direction of travel. They've been on the Wilhelmstrasse. They, they've mixed in the top corridors. They understand the realities of the Nazi dung heap. And, and they know for, for sure that dare I say, Germany, the new Germany, uh, the thousand year Reich is heading for, for big trouble. Uh, and that makes him, to me, a very interesting character mm. because he's, he's lost none of his pugnacity, none of his appetite for a fight, but he's a thinking man. Mm. It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Now you mentioned this is this is an eight book series. There are more to come. They are, as I understand it, they're non-chronological, they have re- recurring characters. How are you keeping track of this series? And is, is there a master plan? Okay, this is going to be a slightly longer answer than you may, you may be uh, uh, used to. Um, and it's partly your fault, actually, because, because <laughs> it was Orion who lured me into crime fiction. And I don't know whether you remember or not, but I, I, well, one of my hidden secrets as a writer is I can't stand crime fiction. I never, I never I, read the stuff. I want to come back to that later. I've got a question about that later, definitely. Okay. <laughs> um, and I did 16 of them because, you know, I've got kids and they had to go to universities and I've got expenses and I've got to keep the fridge at least half full. And so manfully, I, 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 I booked my bunk in the, in, in the crime, crime fiction stalag uh, and, and, and laboured on. But by the time I got to the end of book 16, I'd really had enough. And I, I, I thought, if I, if I have to write another police interview se- uh, sequence, I'm going to go bonkers. And, and, and so I had to step out of that genre. And as you above all would know, for a moderately successful writer, I, in the end, I made a success of it. There was, it was a film series and all the rest of it. But that's not an easy uh, uh, ask. My, my agent, the lovely Ollie Munson, was absolutely appalled. He said, well, you can't leave crime fiction. And I said, Ollie, I'm going to leave crime fiction. And guess what? I've written, uncommissioned, big punt, a World War II book, and it's called Finisterre, 
and if you want to get into the background of that, I'm very happy to do that. However, the, the key thing is his reaction. And he said, absolutely no chance. You are in there for good. You get no pass. You get no spade for the tunnel. You're not going to leave the stalag. You're there forever. So I said, well, no, Ollie, it's this or nothing, mate. And we, you and I, have got to think outside the box. So here's my proposition. World War II, all seven years, were the biggest crime scene in recorded history. So there are umpteen stories to tell. And, and I want you, if at all possible, to find me a like-minded publisher, which God bless him, he did. And he came up with Head of Zeus, mm. a lovely man called Nick Cheatham. Nick mm. Cheatham is a fellow war buff. Never met him in my life. We had a lunch. It's quite a long lunch. <laughs> Unknown to me, uh, Ollie had, had slipped him a copy of, uh, of Finished Air. He'd also slipped him a copy of uh, the synopsis, which I was on a bound to, to offer in terms of a crime fiction thing. And Nick, bless him, said, no, uh, you're, you're not a non-fiction writer anymore. I'm going to turn you into a uh, recent historical adventure writer. <laughs> and, and we spent the rest of that that wonderful, I mean, it shaped, it shaped the rest of my life, that, those two hours. And, and, and we debated terms of engagement, rules of engagement. And, I, and, and his first question was, love the book, love the book. Who are we going to go with for the series? And I said, what do you mean go with? He said, well, we've got to have a lead character. And I said, a bit like Faraday in, in the 12 book Faraday series. And he said, yes, exactly. And I said, well, I'm not doing that anymore. And he says, you're not? I said, no. So what's your proposition? I said, well, my proposition is this, that I come up or you give me the editorial freedoms to do two key things. The first is to be able, as I've described already, to mix the real and the fictional in scene after scene after chapter after chapter after book after book. That's the first thing. The second thing is that you give me the freedom, the liberty to dip into the war and dip out of the war in a non-chronological order as my whims take me. So when I stumble over, and this will happen, I guarantee, Nick, as, as, as the series lengthens and gets more and more successful, um, <laughs> I'm going to be stumbling over untold stories. And he said, so, so you want those two freedoms. You don't want much, do you? He said, we don't. <laughs> You, you, you obviously know that you, you know you don't sell books singly anymore. They've got to be in series, and that means recurring characters. And I said, well, I'm offering you recurring characters because I'm going to come up with a repertory company of maybe six, maybe slightly more recurring characters. And as book follows book follows book, each of these guys will shoulder more or less of the narrative as the, the, the circumstances of the plot and the developing action demand. So that's the bid. So he looked at me and he said, how am I going to sell that to sales? Very good and very honest question. And I said, oh, OK. He said, right, here's the deal. Where are you going now? And I said, I'm going to go to Waterloo. I'm going to get on a train. I'm going back to the West Country where we live. He said, fine, you've got until nine o'clock to come up with a, 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 a case that I can make to sales. So I'm sitting on the train. You can imagine this. And, and you know, the, 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 the train gets emptier and emptier. And we arrive finally at Kruker, two hours into the journey. And I've suddenly got it. I'm looking out and I've got the phrase. And uh, as you will know, you've been in publishing a long time. You've been around words a long time. I was in, in advertising for a very pr pr brief moment. And, and 
the, the key is that one sentence or that half sentence. And I go to the pub, I'm waiting for the next train, and I phone, I phone um, uh, Nick. And, and he said, okay, tell me. He said, I, I said, have you got pen? He said, yeah, I've got a memory as well. <laughs> I said, okay, here's the phrase. Soft linkage. Long pause. Said, what the fuck does that mean? And I said, well, that's the beauty of the phrase. It means nothing, but it's seriously classy. He said, I don't, you're on. We can we can go ahead, and that's how the series came to pass. <laughs> I think we just got the title of this episode: "Soft Linkage." I love it. Uh, it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant, and I love that you were so uncompromising as well. Uh, I think they're particularly new authors. You know, if they're new to the industry, they do as they're told. You're going to write this. You're going to you change this. Blah blah blah. Set it here. Yada yada yada. Uh, but I love how uncompromising you were. And um, well, look, let's let's talk about that change because you you did start as a thriller writer, but as you say, when you moved to Orion, you were persuaded, cajoled to become a crime writer. What was that? <laughs> what was that conversation like? Tell us about that change. All right. Well, every, everything of of any importance, as you know, Mark, in publishing happens over a lunch, and this <laughs> this, this was a, a very thinly attended lunch, which was not a good sign. There was a guy called Malcolm, who you'll remember, Malcolm Edwards. That's it, Malcolm yeah. Edwards, who yeah. was a who was a, a lead honcho in the organisation, and there was a nice man called Simon, um, who who was my editor. And we Simon sat Spanton. Down. Simon Spanton. Yeah, he he doesn't work there. I love Simon. He's edited one of my books. I'm a very lucky man. He's a great editor. Oh, he's a clever. He's a clever guy. He's a gentleman. Yes. In in so many respects. Anyway, so there we are, and I've sent in uh, a proposal for for the next two book contract, um, in, in terms of what what, what we called uh, international thrillers, uh, and it was spun round the, um, the the cows to um, um, Ireland and then back to Plymouth yacht race. And yeah, you know, it, was a, it was a decent ride and so forth. Uh, and as you know as well, you, you tend not to, to talk business until the profit until the profita rolls arrive. You know, it's a protocol. <laughs> so you have to, uh, 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 hold, hold in your impatience until the dessert course. And so the dessert course happens. And I said, I said to, to Malcolm, who, who, who was the, the man who made the decision, I said, "Have you read the work?" He said, "Yeah, yeah. What do you think?" Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. I said, okay, great. Can we talk, you know, money? And he said, no. I said, why is that? He said, we're not going to publish it. And I said, oh, is that right? Now, I had 11 books on the shelf by then. So you might say, well, just go to somewhere else. But as you know, above all, word gets round in this very incestuous mm-hmm. business. And people will start saying, well, what's wrong with her? He doesn't, doesn't he, you know, do it for on time? Is he difficult? Uh, can't you rely on him anymore? Uh, is he too hard or whatever? None of those things are true, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and I say so, and I'm eyeing this this ta- towering piles of profita rolls and thinking it's now the time to ask for the, the brown bag and because this is what we've got to to survive on for the next year. <laughs> so is this the end of the, the grand adventure? And, and, and I remember um, Malcolm saying, no, no, it's not. We, we, we have an invitation to extend. And the invitation is to, is to write, is, is to join our little corner. And we've made this really successful corner in commercial fiction and it's crime fiction, which is the fastest growing bit of the, of, of the, of the commercial fiction wood. And we've got a, a young Scottish writer we've just broken out and his name is Ian Rankin. <laughs> and we've got a table of fantastic 
American writers like Mike Connolly and James Lee Burke, etc. So you'll be in distinguished companies. Now we have noticed, Glenn, that we can't take you out of Portsmouth or Portsmouth out of you. And we think that what we'd like to do is for you to do a ranking on, on Portsmouth or Pompey, as you call it. Yeah. And I said, all right, no pressure then. Uh, and, and, he, uh, and he said, it won't be a two-book contract, it'll be a three-book contract. The money was dreadful. It was a third <laughs> of what I started on. And I said, do I have any any option here? He said, well, you have an option. You can, you can leave us completely. And I said, all right. Okay, um, how long do I have to make up my mind? And, and he said, you've got until the end of the week. And this was a Wednesday. So I said, okay, right, I'm sitting on the train going home, back to my lovely wife, Lynn, and I'm thinking this is going to be a very big problem. Why? Because I can't stand crime fiction. I never read the stuff. I think it's repetitive. I think it's it does what a genre shouldn't do. It makes way for all too often bad writing, though there are some very, very good practitioners in the field. Um, and, you know, I'd be bound to a wheel. I don't want to, to, to even glimpse. But I have no choice. So what do I do? Two options. One, I, I had enough money to uh, uh, fence off about five weeks before I had to find a proper job. Um, so that, that's research. I can either go to the second floor of Pompey's magnificent central library, and there you will find uh, the proof positive for Orion's faith in crime fiction. There are kilometres of yeah. bookshelves that carry nothing but crime fiction. And I can I can read f five five weeks' worth, which will t turn me into a, an automaton, and I'll end up writing really bad pastiche crime fiction. Or I could do what I did in television, and I'd spend two decades in TV making documentaries, and by far the most interesting thing in that exercise was research, was doing the novelist things, getting beside people and and trying to work out what life was like for them. You know, you clamber into their heads, you clamber into their hearts and all the rest of it. And I ha had a huge stroke of luck. I've, I've been blessed with good luck all my life. And a, a guy who turned out to, to love my f fiction to date was the, the Pompey police chief. And he said, "No, you come along any time. I'll, I'll give you the, you know, the, the, sort of the, the basic course in police procedural, and then I'll, I'll put you in amongst the reptiles." And <laughs> this should have been a health warning. And I said, "Reptiles." His name was and is Roly Roly Dumont, and 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 he was the, the top cop. And all the detectives loathed him. <laughs> he, he'd been in uniform all his life. He was an honest man. Most of the cops weren't. Um, and they hated him. Um, uh, and uh, they're, they're uh, uh, in, in, in the, the relevant police station, which is, happens to be Kingston Crescent, there are, are two, two crime, crime offices. One's really interesting, which is the, the major crime squad. And there, there's something called um, uh, the, the, the volume crime team. Now, you've got to imagine 16 really pissed off cops. They're sitting behind desks. They've joined up for fast car chases and serial killers. And mercifully, there are neither or very few in Pompey. And so they spend most of their paid time chasing feral kids from, you know, blagged shops to blagged shops, low-level low social nuisance, nicking cars, getting in people's faces. And these guys are catatonic. They loathe the job. They're also very, very good at... at handling what they term their enemies. And 
each of these guys carries a list, literally, of enemies. And it's categories of people. You can imagine it starts off with their line managers. These are the guys that sign their overtime forms. And then it goes to local politicians, home office politicians, home office civil servants. And then at the very top, anyone from the media, people like them <laughs> who, who snuggle up in, in, in the next chair and say, well, Harry, you know, what's it like for you, et cetera. And they saw me off completely. And I'd done, I'd done over 100 documentaries by now. I, I'm good at research. I'm good at, at winning people's trust. Did it work? No. <laughs> However, I had no option. And so I had to, to stop and I had to, to look and I had to listen. And above all, listen. And you begin to get your finger on the pulse of that office. And you begin to realize that seriously interesting things are happening underneath the surface. And they have mainly to do with people's private lives and people's wives and people's girlfriends and how much most of those guys hate each other and what they've got on each other. And I think this is really interesting. Um, so what I'm going to do is make my little notes at the end of each day. And I'm going to write my first uh, crime fiction thriller in the minor key. So at, at the end of my five weeks, I'm spent up. I go home. I go in the back bedroom. I put pen to paper. I base it on the synopsis I took to that original lunch uh, about the yacht race. You know, because nothing is wasted in, 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 in the writer's life. Yes. I send it off. Normally, I have to wait about, I don't know, something like 10 days to get a response from Simon, Simon Spanton. It, on this occasion, three days later, phone rings, it's Simon. He says, we've never read anything like this before. And I said, oh, I wonder why that is. And I said, well, why? He said, it just sounds so real. And I said, well, that's because I sat for five weeks and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they loved it, absolutely loved it. And um, as you may or may not know, and there were very, very little work to do on the manuscript, uh, and it went out uh, in, in the year 2000. And uh, again, as you know, every published author gets uh, 10 hardbacks. Uh, and this, this, this is where I was very clever. I took seven of those hardbacks and I tottered back to the Kingston Crescent Police Station. I went back to the volume crime office and I have an armful of books and, and heads looked up around the room. And I said, all right, guys, I'm not staying. I'm not going to bug you. I'm not going to hear this is what it's all about. And I just distributed them. Now, why did I do that? Because cops, uniformed, CID, are monumentally mean. They never put their hands in their pockets. <laughs> they would never buy this thing. And, and so I said, uh, see what you make of it, guys. And I went home. And about, I know, four or five days later, the phone begins to ring. And it's cop after cop after cop. And, of course, the story is obvious. And they're saying, look, Graham, you know, no offence, mate, we got you wrong. We didn't know what you were going to make of us. You could have made anything of us. We're used to people from television especially, and they and they just never listen. They never get it right. Just watch any drama. It's all fucking wrong. <laughs> However, you did, for whatever reason, you got it right, mate. Uh, and uh, I tell you what, I'm speaking for my mates and me. Any time you want to meet us in a pub, as long as you're in the chair, we'll all be there and, and we'll <laughs> tell you anything. And they're as good as their word. And, and, and I ended up with the longest contacts book, you know, list of, of disaffected detectives in Portsmouth <laughs> that anyone can imagine. And then there's just a, there's a little codicil, there's a little PS to this story. And uh, some time had gone by 
And the phone rang again and, and I picked it up and it was a voice that I didn't recognise. And I said, you, the voice said, are you Graham Hurley? I said, yes, I am. And he, he, I said, who are you? Uh, and he wouldn't tell me to begin with. And I said, well, I'm not going to talk to you until you, you give me your name. He said, well, my name is Colin. I said, oh, hello, Colin. How can I help you? He said, we, you know, life's all pronouns. We have read your book. I said, well, who are you? He said, I'm assistant chief constable for CID and special operations. Now, my book, because it was honest, because it reflected life, everyone in paid employment, whether they work in publishing, the police, television, spend a lot of their paid time bitching about the bosses. And believe me, <laughs> um, uh, detectives are no different. And, and did the book reflect that? In spades. Why? Because the guys on the top floor in police headquarters in Winchester hadn't got a clue what goes on <laughs> in the street. So I'm talking to my new friend, Colin, and, and, and I, I say, well, what do you think of the book? And he won't tell me. So he said, once again, we have a... An invitation to extend, and I thought, oh no, you know, attend a police station of your choice, bring your driving license and your dog. And he said, no, 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 no. We've noticed that you're dealing only with volume crime, you know, you know, those crap crime. Um, we want you to run with the, the 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 major crimes team. We've got four of them, as you know. One of them, Southeast um, Hampshire, and it's the busiest, and it's based in Portsmouth. Um, the next time we get a decent murder, we like you to be our guest um is that okay so i said yeah it's fine you've got any questions i said just one he said what's that i said what's a decent murder <laughs> and he said he said well a decent murder it used to be um the bloke comes back on friday he comes from the pub the meal's been on the table in the kitchen for three hours it's gone cold he's pissed as a rat and there's a huge domestic and he ends up killing his wife these days it's more it's more likely that the wife kills the husband because she's sober and, and believe me women take no prisoners anymore but the first thing the woman does is to lift the phone and call us so that gives you Graham, maybe a paragraph maybe a couple of sentences but we want something with legs something that's going to run and run in other words a decent murder now pompey in all kinds of respects, has never let me down. This was Christmas. <laughs> Just after Christmas, it's, it, it, it's snowing. It's three o'clock in the morning. I'm in bed with my wife, and there's this thunderous noise on, on the front door. And I go down, I open the door, and, and the snow is falling out of the darkness. And there's this huge uniformed cop there. And he says, are you Graham Hurley? I said, yeah. He says, there's been a murder. I said, well, mate, I've, my alibi's upstairs. She's in bed. Do you want me to get? No, 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 mate. I've been asked to get. Look, go upstairs, get yourself changed. Uh, uh, I'm going to drive you north. Uh, and that's what he did. And we went to some woodland on, on the mainland near a place called Wickham. And, and a guy, guy uh, earlier in the day in the afternoon had been walking his dog. And there in a shallow grave had been the body of a low-level drug runner from North End, which is a, 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 an area of Pompey. And that, that was the beginning of Operation Rankin, funnily enough. And, um, and they were as good as they were. Now, um, investigating major crimes is, 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 is meetings big time. Meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. They go on for, for weeks, in this case months. And for the first two months, I attended every single one. And it completely changed my take on the police. And it laid the foundations for everything that followed in that series. 
it was it was no less authentic, probably even more authentic than the first book, but because it was dealing at depth and in depth with the workings of the major crime uh, machine, and it is a machine, I have had this amazingly privileged insight into the way they, they do it. Uh, I, I mean, life in Pompey then and now is no... Whereabouts do you live, Mark? I'm in Kent, North Kent. But I've, yeah, but I've been, I've been, I used to go yeah, to Portsmouth a lot. <laughs> Sorry. Is it anywhere near Chatham? Uh, I'm about 45 minutes from Chatham. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but but you, you will know that, that you know, if, 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 if some oik, uh, middle of the night, pissed, pissed out of his head, kick, kicks your wing mirror off, there's no point even, even, even lifting the phone. If, on the other hand, you, you know, your, your loved one or your whoever, gets killed then you'll get fantastic service from the police and that's true wherever you might be so that that was the stroke of luck and that actually transformed my prospects and i began uh, in the end i wrote uh, 12 uh, cry fires as we now call them based around uh, joe faraday in pompey uh, I, and i really enjoyed it and that's because i think they were a bit different they were, they were a sort of slice of of social history if you like um, and i've always subscribe to the theory, and it was Simon's theory to begin with, Simon Spanton, my editor, you know, um, that that Pompey, and he knew Pompey a lot because he used to come and stay, and he was horrified by Pompey. You know, he was a Suffolk boy. And um, <laughs> and, and he, he said, you know, uh, Portsmouth is, is based on an island, and that's true, it is. Um, and and it, 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 it's the UK writ small. So everything you see, and you record in your books through the eyes of Faraday, happening in Pompey will happen in the end everywhere in this country. And do you know, it's turned out to be exactly true. Exactly true. It's, I used so to, I hold my head high now. I, I don't know where to start with that. There's so much to discuss. I used to go to Portsmouth a lot when I was a sales rep for Headline. I used to go to the Otticus in Portsmouth. And I remember driving in and you, I'd always see two rusty submarines sort of leaning against each other. <laughs> Yes, that's right. It's like that's the Harrytown scrapyard. Right. Okay. I always wonder what they were. It's like is that just where the Royal Navy dumps submarines when they're done with them? What's what's the story there? Um, but yeah, it's it is a it is a fast, you're absolutely right. It is it is this? It's all of the UK sort of compressed into one place. But what I love is that the fact that you are not a crime fan gave you this unique perspective on the genre and therefore you brought something completely different to it, which uh, is just fascinating to me, absolutely fascinating to me. As you said, you did a, all of these Joe Faraday books and then they did their, the Jimmy Suttle series, which moved yeah. the action to East Devon, which is very different to Portsmouth. Uh, and I imagine that there aren't as many brutal murders in East Devon, are there? I mean, that was, that was a bit of a challenge, wasn't it? It, it was uh, it was very challenging to try and, and sell the concept. Um, I, I invite you to another lunch at the end of the Faraday series. By by now, it's become you know a success. Um, it's gone into six seven languages. The French have, have started to make these uh, seven feature film length uh, adaptations, which they did magnificently. Mm. You know, it's acquired a big readership both in this country and abroad. Uh, and therefore, there are many, many more faces around the table, and uh, we don't even wait for the profita rolls. <laughs> uh, and uh, then uh, again, it's Malcolm saying, "Well, well, Graham, share with us your ideas for books 13, uh, 14, and fifteen." And I say, "Well, okay, guys, 
I've got some bad news, or maybe bad news, but there will be no more Faraday books. And there's a sort of silence around the table. And, and, uh, and Malcolm says, why? And I said, well, the USP for the series is, is their authenticity. I, at the point when I started the series, 12 years ago, I was 42. I made my, top, my lead cops, Faraday and Winter, 42. They've now aged. They're now 54. And in real time, cop time, they'd be retiring. So, um, and um, no spoilers, but something not good has happened to Faraday. Um, uh, and he says, well, uh, we can get over that. Don't, don't worry about that. I said, you're right. Absolutely right, Malcolm. And this is how we're going to do it. There's a younger cop um, uh, called um, Jimmy Suttle. And he's a DS. He's only 32. That's the good news. There's lots of shelf life in, in Jimmy Suttle. I'm going to kidnap him and bring him down to where we now live. Uh, and Malcolm says, well, where, where do you now live? And I said, as you just said, East Devon. And there's this terrible silence around the table. And people are looking at each other. And then Malcolm picks up the running and he says, Graham, East, East Devon. I said, yeah. Have you any idea what's happening year on year? month by month, week on week, to English crime fiction. It's getting more violent, it's getting more metropolitan, it's getting more noir, and it's getting uh, ever less compromising. And you're trying to sell us a series set in leafy East Devon? I said, yeah. What's it like down there? I said, it's fantastic. <laughs> I rest my case, he said. No chance at all. I do my best to, to, to sell, fail completely. However, the fridge is now full, thanks to the French, and, and I, I get back on the train, I go home, and I'm a happy bun. Um, and I hear nothing from, from Orion uh, for about five months. And by this time, Lynn and I have been in Exmouth for two years. And, um, uh, and then the phone goes, and it's Orion, and it, it's Simon. And Simon says, um, look, we, we, we've had a no-show. In fact, someone's died uh, who's yet to deliver uh, for next spring's um, list. Uh, and, and so we've got a bit of a hole. Um, you know that, that proposition about East Devon and Jimmy Sun? I said, yeah. He said, I think you're wrong. I said, oh, that's great. Uh, no, no problem at all. And so he said, that's the good news. The bad news is it's now late October. We need it by Christmas. <laughs> said, no problem at all. You know, I, I do. I, I mean, I do write very quickly, but I write on the basis of research. Mm. Never, ever write what you haven't researched out. So we agree that we'll do the book. And we agree in financial terms, and it's all good. Down goes the phone. I think, Christ, what am I going to do? Now, the only thing I really know about Exmouth is, is the, the rowing club, because Lynn and I have both joined the rowing club. We've been mad about the sea all our lives. We swim, we sail, we do this, that, and the other, and we join the rowing club. So I'm thinking, okay, so I can base it around the rowing club. What do I do for a plot? And now, Agatha Christie used to live down the coast, uh, and her, her, her big house overlooking the River Dart, Greenways, is just a, a, a bus ride away. So I think what I'll do is to take the classical... English country house murder, uh, and I'll restage it afloat. We uh, row um, uh, uh, four skull plus Cox French boats. Uh, they're called skulls, uh, and the, broadly the, the plot will be one one guy dies, one of the other four did it. Um, think on, but 
as you know, above all, all, all else, two things matter in the book. Number one's the cover, but number two is the first page. You've got to have a real blaster of an opening. And I hadn't got an opening. And, 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 and I figured out the rest of the plot over the days that came. And then the weekend turned up. And the weekend, we all go down for our row on Sundays and we're wearing all the kit and the red T-shirt, etc. And I'm standing there and all our boats are on the beach. And this fit-looking guy comes up and he says, uh, are you anything to do with the rowing club? And it's right over my chest. I said, yeah, well done. Yes, I am. How can I help you? He said, well, can anyone join? I said, yeah, but you've got to know something about rowing. He said, well, I, I know a bit, not very much. So I said, OK, I'm patronising as you like. I said, I'll take you up to the clubhouse. <clears throat> I'll put you on a rowing machine, see how good you are. Uh, and, and then if there's any hope at all, I'll bring you back to the beach. We'll pop you in the boat. Three experienced rowers, experienced cops, take you for a trip around the bay, see how you do. How's that? He said, yeah, that's fine. So we, we're going up towards the, the boathouse. And I, I, I say, precautionary question, how much experience have we really got? And he said, well, last year I rowed the Atlantic. <laughs> and I, oh, dear. I think we'll, we'll skip. Skip the rowing machine. We, so we turn around. We put him in a boat. He taught us all about rowing. That was good. He, he didn't, in the end, um, join the club. But what we did do is we got together as friends. And, and I owe the friendship with lots of lots of beer. And I got him to tell me about his crossing the Atlantic, unusually west to east. And uh, he did it with, with another guy. And it gave me everything in terms of that that. that that coincidental detail, those little tiny two-per-paragraph touches that liven up a text and convince you, the reader, yeah. and me, the reader, that whoever you're listening to has walked the course, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and so that was a huge, huge stroke of luck. And, and that launched the, the first in what became a quartet. And after that, it was um, spoils of war. Fantastic. I want to go back to the North Atlantic for a minute. If, uh, yeah. if, because as I understand it, and this is going back to before you were published, you were a documentary maker. And am I right in thinking that you came up with uh, an idea? I think, was it Rules of Engagement when you were in the North Atlantic looking for the Titanic? Correct. Absolutely. <laughs> Tell us more. <laughs> well, um, I was working for TVS. I, I started working for, for Southern. Southern lost the franchise. TVS came along. Uh, and th this this is a world of television that's now disappeared. So there are very very few buttons on your set. Basically, there are by the time we're, we're in the mid eighties, there are only four. Uh, so there's very little com competition for, for 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 advertising, which meant that we had big big production budgets. In other words, we could we could we could take a risk or two with really big projects. And um, uh, TVS, to their great credit, because the Titanic sailed. Uh, in April 1912, from Southampton on her her first and final voyage, as it turned out, and and they knew that a guy, uh, uh, an American East Coast oceanographer called Bob Ballard, yeah, was was heading up a, an expedition to find the Titanic uh, and then to send down submersibles and uh, remote cameras, etc., and film it. And um, and they and and TVS uh, bid for the for the for the, the the rights to make the documentary. Cost them a fortune. Asked me to do it. Uh, long story short, I'd turn up in in um, Cape Cod, Woods Hole, uh, get on a converted hull trawler, and, and forge out into the North Atlantic, where we're going to find hopefully the Titanic. And um, uh, the, the, the boat is the key to this. Um, 
and, and in the shape of the skipper, um, who, whose name was John, John Nickel. And he was a lovely man. And, and he and I shared a passion for books. And he, he, he had a cabin, obviously, and slightly bigger than the rest of the cabins. And, 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 you know, wherever you look, there were books and books and books. And we buddied up. You know, we spent a lot of time together. And we'd retire to his cabin after supper and we'd, we'd sink a few beers. And, uh, and I, I shared with him my still passion at some point to somehow get into print with a, with a novel. And I, by this time, I'd written... Uh, nine mercifully unpublished novels. They were not <laughs> great work, but you know, I'd served my apprenticeship, and uh, 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 and, and we we arrived at what we called the search box, which was a sort of 10, 10 mile by five mile patch of ocean beneath which somewhere down there was the Titanic, and we began to tow this black and white camera up and down and up and down and up and down, searching for forty six thousand tons of missing liner, and you think that'd be uh, an easy ask and it wasn't and it was also incredibly boring so you're sitting there day after day w- watching i don't know if you've ever seen the uh, uh, the bottom of the atlantic two and a half miles down but it looks like the arse end of the moon there is nothing down there least of all you know and so we we we're going on and on and on uh, and then uh, and i'm talking to john and we've you know we've bonded etc and i've shared with him my dreams and he said look listen we're not finding this boat so why don't you borrow the radio room i've got a typewriter you know do, do something to hasten your bid to get into print and so i said well good idea and i've got someone else to watch the uh, the monitor the following day and i i did a synopsis for a six-part tv drama partly because i knew the, the head of, of, of our tv drama quite well so I did it all, and I showed it to, to, to John Nickel that night, and it was called Rules of Engagement. And I won't bother you with the plot, but it was a sort of um, cold, cold War plot. And he said, this is great. Get on the radio uh, tomorrow. I've got a fax machine. You can fax it to your mate and, and see how we go. Now, the following week, and it was a Wednesday, and it was raining, two things happened. In the morning, I'm, I'm sitting comatose as ever, gazing at this screen. And for the first time in, in three weeks, something man-made wobbles into view, goes in and out of focus, and then disappears. And I'm not quite sure. It looked like a, a champagne bucket. I wasn't sure. And then there's, there's more of nothing. And then I see a deck chair. A, a, a deck chair. And then about a minute later, the clinching evidence. And it's a life belt. It's upside down, but I'm really good at reading upside down. And it says RMS Titanic on it. Now, that's a clue in our, our trade. Hey. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. So, okay, we've now find, found the Titanic, and it turned out to be in two bits. There's a, there's a, um, a, a, a long aft section, um, and there's a, a shorter one-third bow section, and there's the debris field, which is what, what we straight across in the middle and, and it, it's this is the business and, and and now the real work can begin however that afternoon i got a, a fax from london from my mate in itv saying that they read the, 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 the six episode proposal and they really loved it and i'm on now all that happened in one day and looking <laughs> back i have to say um which of those two events shaped the rest of your life and the answer has to be that phone call um because you know it's led it's led to to me getting to print. First thing I did when we got back with all our rushes and so forth was to find myself an agent. 
she found within a day and a half, Pan Macmillan, I was on for the novelization of Rules of Engagement, and we were off. Uh, and, and that's where the, the real adventure, what I wanted to do all my waking life, probably sleeping life too, um, <laughs> began. That is phenomenal. Graham, we've, we're running out of time. I'd love you to come back one day and we'll pick it up from there uh, and go from there because there's still so much to talk about. But I've gone too long. Not at all. This has been an absolute joy. I, I've, I, it's made my day. Um, but, yeah, we've got so much more to talk about, I think. But, folks, listen, The Blood of Others is out there. I think this episode is coming out about a month before Christmas. It's the ideal Christmas gift, uh, as well as seven others of them. So uh, treat yourselves, folks. Uh, and and also, you know, a whole ton of, what was it, you said uh, 49 books. So, uh, lucky dip, pick a handful. You, you're you not going to be disappointed. Um, Graham, it's been an absolute treat speaking to you today. And, uh yeah, we definitely need to get you back on and uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Okay. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Wow. I mean, yeah. I, I've got to say, that's a, that's a first, Mark, isn't it? An author looking for the Titanic. I, I can't remember anyone on the show that's done that in seven years. Like what? It's amazing, isn't it? We can in, keep interviewing authors, but there's always some some incredible yeah. stories. But the thing I loved about Graham is, I mean, if, if his books are anything like the way he talks, he is just, you can imagine sitting with him and at a pub the whole day just yep. telling stories because he is absolutely the consummate storyteller. And, he, and his books are like that. If, if, you, if you just heard what you liked, then you're going to like Graham's books and you've got plenty to choose from. So, uh, yeah, do do dip in. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's such a great chat. We, ha- we have to start somewhere as well. I and mean, We have to start somewhere. But <laughs> for me, the thing that I cannot believe this, last week we had someone saying, don't buy my book. That was a first. Yeah. And this time we've got someone <laughs> being told that they need to write a crime novel and they and they. Come can't stand crime <laughs> and yet you know we talked about this last week didn't we about the uh, saying yes and going with it and mm-hmm. seeing what happens yeah uh, but what an incredible story that that you know he found a way to write crime using the things that he loves and then became really successful with it as well I mean, when he when I, I don't want to speak for Graham, but basically, when he says he hates crime, I think he hates the tropes of crime and the cliches of crime. Yeah. And to get over that, he is a documentarian. Rather than going for the genre, for the easy thing, the thing that crops up again and again, he went for the reality. He he went to speak to the cops uh, and got to know them and earned their trust, you know, and uh, did his due diligence and got. All those, I mean, last week with Fiona, she was talking about those little details that make all the difference. And it's the same thing here with Graham. You know, he was talking about that there. So all those touches that 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 make a difference. And then what I thought was important was he rewarded them with copies of his his book to say, look, this is where it all it all ends up, you know. Uh and <laughs> Cops are all really tight and wouldn't have bought it. So he <laughs> yeah. gave them a free copy uh, just to say, look, this this is how it ends up. So, yeah, I I think um, that having that kind of healthy disregard, not for the genre, but maybe for the tropes of the genre. If you've seen, you know, if, if you, what, romance or fantasy or whatever genre you're writing in, if you look at it and think, oh, God, it's just the same old, same old again and again and again, that's probably a really good place to start. Because, I mean, just I mentioned Joe Abercrombie earlier. Joe was looking at the same old, same old in fantasy, but thought, actually, I'm going to do things a bit differently. I'm going to make these characters feel a bit more real, uh, it, which is where we get this grimdark thing. I mean, 
arguably it started with George R. R. Martin. You know, that you know, putting a new spin on something that hasn't been done before, it's a risk because publishers will go, well, maybe we don't know how to sell this. Or some of them will go, thank God you're here. This is exactly what we need to give the genre a shot in the arm. So if you're looking at a genre and you're thinking, oh, do I fit in here because I'm not doing what the bestsellers are doing? No, don't worry about that. If you've got a unique take on it, it could be the best thing ever. Wow. It's just incredible, isn't it? Absolutely incredible. Mm. Now, he also talked about, I, I, I was thinking about method actors here yep. in this interview. And I was thinking, <laughs> who are the top 10 method actors? And this is this is Wikipedia. So we've got Daniel Day-Lewis, Marlon Brando, Heath Ledger, Christian Bale, uh, Jared Leto, uh, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, the list goes on. Now, we've never talked about this, but we hear a lot of authors who go way above and beyond the uh, you know call of duty, so to speak, to really get in to the lives and the minds and experiences of the people they're writing about. And Graham is is definitely in our top 10 of what I'd call method writers. And I think, isn't it incredible that, like the stories about him spending, you know, weeks in the police station. And then the story he mentioned about the, the, the dedication of like middle of the night being literally all in. There's some guy banging on the door at three in the morning saying, right, there's been a murder. And then he goes off to the woods. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> absolutely mental but that's, that's I, the do, that's the documentarian that's it is. that's the person who says okay i'm not going to rely on someone getting back to me on i need to be there on the ground I need to experience it firsthand yeah. yeah yeah and i wonder if i wonder if document documentary making is a brilliant uh kind of pre education if you like mm. for someone who really wants to write those kind of books where they really get under the skin of of yeah. the of not just the people in your book, but everything around it as well. I mean, you think about how complex the police procedurals are, the the worlds that they live in and the, the mindset and the things they have to deal with. There's so much to that. And he went straight in to the middle of it and experienced it, which is, I guess, the next best thing to actually being that cop and having lived that life, right? Yeah, and and each of these industry, you know, professions especially, they present a, a, a facade. You know, the, the police will say, okay, we are the guardians. You know, we are the people who who keep the law. But of course, behind that, and you know, we kind of know that it's fairly chaotic and difficult, and it, it has terrible. You know, takes a terrible toll on anyone who's a who's a cop or does that kind of you know thin blue line kind of thing. Uh, but then go beyond that and go beyond that and keep digging until you get something you might not have found before. And that's your angle. That's the thing that you, because documentarians, yes, you could say to them, okay, you know, do a, do a documentary on police corruption or, you know, cops who are unhappy or, or whatever. And you can reach for the easy cliches or you can dig and dig and dig until you find something new. And I think that's what Graham does so well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we have to talk about this incredible story of him looking for the Titanic. And I just, I mean, it was so vivid how he told it. I had him, I had a sense of him sitting there looking at this sonar look, and he talked <laughs> about this deck chair and a bell floating past. But isn't it incredible that during that experience of like that long drawn out process of, of making that documentary, he decides that he's going to start writing a pitch <laughs> something completely irrelevant. I mean, it, sometimes it's, it's almost like not sleight of hand, but it's the thing that we think 
we're meant to be doing is actually just the reason or the excuse to get us somewhere to do the other thing. And this is a really good example of that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, we we think we might have a calling in life or we think that there is something that is monumentally important in life, but it's, I mean, you know, discovery of the Titanic, Bob Ballard, all of that was an astonishing. I was completely hooked by it. I got the books and everything, you know, it's, it was, it was, it was amazing. Um, you know, we're all the hero of our own story, I guess. And 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 Graham was had suddenly had all this downtime, I guess, on this ship where there's a lot of hurry up and wait and a lot of wait and wait and wait. So how do you fill the time? You fill the time by doing something that, you know, f- fills your cup. And uh for him it was coming up with the, you know, an idea for a for a, you know a, sh- a show that uh kicked off his his fiction and tv writing career so uh i i think sometimes we can find ourselves if we've done something for so long we kind of think well this is it isn't it and it's not i think and whatever your age you mm. know you can uh, you can reinvent yourself absolutely with a th- absolutely. By a th- with a thought that is what yeah. it is yeah. i mean like, you hear this so many times don't you but our the, our, ge- our kids generation you know, they're going to be the generation who have seven or eight jobs, you know, and, and can have that complete midlife pivot. With us, we, you know, I think we need to look ahead and kind of think, okay, I'm in my 50s now, but is it too late to change and do this? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, you can totally make that change. Yeah, exactly. I think as well, it was an interesting story in that it wasn't just the combination of being on that ship and, and just like time passing and being you know, just really bored and not really know what to do, but it was that conversation that he had. It was the meeting of a like-minded individual and they would chat at night. And it was almost like that conversation that we, that he had inspired him to do it. And I think that it's a location thing, but it's also about the people that we meet. And sometimes all it takes, and we can probably all think back to someone in our life who once said one thing to us or one conversation that was that thing that pivoted us or made us think, you know what, I should really go for this. I should do this. And so sometimes it's about putting ourselves in places where we might meet those people, because that's the thing, you know, we talked last week about going to the location to learn about the location so that we could write about it. But sometimes in, especially when it comes to people at the same time, last week, we talked about how Fiona met this woman on a walk and she could have just walked past her, but they actually ended up chatting. And so Sometimes it's about being open to those chance encounters happening, going to your local, this is why we encourage writers, you know, a lot of us work from home now, Um, you know, go to your local library, go to your local coffee shop, be around people, write, but be around people because those people might have a really important part to play in your story. They might be an inspiration for a character. They might be a publisher who happens to find out you're an author and ends up publishing your book, a filmmaker. I mean, so many different combinations of things could happen. Um, but we have to get out there and we have to also, like you say, get used to having conversations with people again. Cause I think we're all a little bit, um, <laughs> our practice with that, with COVID, we've all become a little bit insular. People aren't visiting people as much as they used to. I don't know if you've noticed that, but like, you know, mm. invites and going in, and we don't invite people around as much as we used to. It's, it's, we're, we've all shrunk a bit in our lives. And I think we have to start opening up a bit more, especially as authors, because that's where things like this can happen that we saw happen with Graham, which is, 
like you said, it was his, he did say, didn't he? It was the most, it was the thing he'd always wanted to happen. He'd been dreaming of happening mm. and it happened whilst he was looking for the Titanic, which is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, day. Finding the Titanic is the second most important thing that happened to you that day. That's Yeah, it's fantastic. Great line. I love it. That's a good t-shirt. Oh, brilliant <laughs> stuff, folks. Um, and he also mentioned very quickly in passing this idea that the cover and the first page are the most important parts of a book. Now, he kind of glossed over it, but I, I just we wanted spied, to jump on it? that. We, we spotted it because it's, <laughs> it's an it's a important reminder. We can't hear this enough. Obviously, the cover... We talked about people like redoing their covers, the books like suddenly getting a new lease of life. But the first page is something we do in the academy as well. We 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 have a course, don't we, on writing that first page and giving that first page to people to say, would you read this? Does it grab you? Yeah, Does is you it is it knock? Because yeah. you know, if there's one page you're gonna have to work and work and rework and work. And I know people that go to bookshops, they pick up books. And they read the opening line. And if the opening line doesn't grab it, they put it back on the shelf. Mm. So the cover test is, yeah, I like the cover. And then the next test to buy the book is, does the opening line or paragraph grab me? So I think a lot of people don't pay enough attention to that. I think, oh, I'll just ease into the story, set the scene. You've got to knock it out of the park, like, like Graham said. I mean, yeah. what was he saying? A real blaster of an opening. So Yeah. And actually, if you want a good example of that, and this isn't to kind of like promote our own book but we had discussions <laughs> we did didn't we mark we had discussions about that opening page and we wanted something like that first page of back to reality it is crazy it's all happening um and and it and it but we had to kind of get to that place that wasn't the initial starting point of the book we started we wrote that first page i think when we were quite a ways through the book if i remember right Right yeah, now. I've just I've just done I've done the same thing. The fifth Woodville book that I'm working on now, the opening chapter now isn't what the opening chapter was to start with, and it was around about the fifth chapter. But I thought actually this is a bit of a move. I can I can start. put this and it, it's a rollicking opening. It's Brilliant. it's a real shocker. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, this is it. This is it. And once that <laughs> was in place, it's like the keystone of a bridge. It's like okay, I can. I can put everything else in place now. I yeah. feel I feel like I've got a really good foundation to mix my metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's great though. I think it so the important thing to remember there is that you don't have to write the opening first page when you start your book. That usually happens. Mm. I mean, honestly, I would probably do that. I would keep redoing it, but then, you know, review it at the end of the book and then then start really working on it to make it as good as it can be. But can't stress that enough. And, and if you're interested in that, I mean, the, the course in the Academy is a really eye-opening as well in terms of, you know, an actual process for doing that and how you really do need to go out there and ask people for feedback on it. Um, do you, do your market research before you publish that book? Mm. Uh, and there's a lot of people thinking, oh, I wish I'd done that before I published my book now. But, you know, like we talked about last week, you can put your book, you can get your, if it's an ebook, you can update that front page. You know, you know, people people do that all the time. So mm. think about think about how that might change things for you. So, folks, if you'd like to join us in the extended, we're going to cover uh, the importance of publisher lunches. We're going to be also <laughs> talking about soft linkage, which came up in the interview. Um, Mark's going to deep dive us on research tips. Um, so, if you're interested in any of those, or if you just want to support the podcast, because that's what this is all about. If you support this podcast, um, we can keep this podcast on the road. So, pop along to bestseller experiment.com forward slash support sign up to become a patron of the podcast and uh, get all these extra goodies so mr stay wins this week 
Yes, so Inkborn Blade on Twitter, who uh, writes as J.W. Langton Will, as we know him, uh, he says, I have multiple wins and a dream declaration for the bestseller experiment. October was my best ever month of 23,000 words. I finished the first draft of my working process and a short story for an anthology submission. Now for the goal. The Lost Goddess, which is his novel, is going to be ready for SPFBO. Now, this is the thing that uh, I'm going to get this wrong now. Uh, it's, it's basically a science fiction fantasy kind of uh, competition. I think ends in June or, or the deadline is in June. So he, basically, Will's declaration is for June 2024. Bring it on. So good luck with that, Will. Brilliant, got Will. everything crossed for you there. And just a fun that one from Rosie Moore here. It says, having fun with my NaNoWriMo project because I like to make life more challenging for myself. I'm doing it all on the typewriter. That's a first. That's, uh, you know. And then I'll do the second wow. draft on the computer. It does make it harder to keep track of my word count, but the dopamine hit I get from bashing at the old style <laughs> keys more than makes up for it. So that's, you know, you're earning the words there with a clackety, clackety, clack, and it is very satisfying. I so, guess yeah. there is something about that, isn't there? Because I've always heard about the importance of, like, um, audible anchoring. And mm-hmm. I guess you're getting that with the sound. Yeah, I never thought about that. Interesting. It's like your word mm-hmm. count... In audio. <laughs> yeah, clackety, clackety, clacks. Good, good. And no, I, I believe and you, you have a win. Yeah, You've we've been win sent a win here from... from hot off the n- press. I know, hot off the press. Nicole, this, week, well, this is morning. See, it's straight onto the podcast. Um, mm. Nicole Machowski, who was uh, who joined the Academy when we first opened it um, three wow. years ago now. Hello, Miss Mark S and Mark D. Well, I finally did it. The novel I started in September 2019 as my B- BXP Academy project is now complete and out into the wild. Brilliant. The end of the Jew line. Great title. Um Nick has published this on Amazon under the pen name Nick Keys. That's K-E-Y-E-S. And she said, hitting publish was just the start. I've got many more steps ahead, including setting up the website, landing page, not done, and actual marketing beyond friends and family. We all know about that when we put the first book out there. And she said, as I learn in the academy, I must overcome the resistance of the humble writer and shout about it. So, well, we're chatting about it for you, Nick. Congratulations. You see, and inspiring people there, it's you just keep pushing forwards and it is done. I know Nick's had an incredibly busy life with kids and schools and all kinds of things. So congratulations That's to you, brilliant. Nick. Congrats, Nick. We'll pop a link in the show notes so people can, can check that out. Fantastic, folks. Well, listen, folks, if you've enjoyed this episode of The Best Seller experiment please do tell your friends it's the way this uh, experiment keeps on going and if you know anyone that could get any kind of value from today's episode please drop them a note put it on your facebook page whack it up share it on instagram and pinterest in fact how can people do that mark with uh, socials yes you'll find us on facebook at bestseller experiment and twitter instagram and threads we are at bestseller xp come and say hello and yes share we put up regular posts about the 200 word a day challenge and all sorts of other fun stuff do please share those because it it really does help people get their books finished and if you've enjoyed this week's interview with graham or any of the other authors we've had on the podcast please uh, give us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe that really helps make us visible as well and a big thank you to ed- editors dave and jd as well absolutely and don't forget folks if you'd like to join the academy 2024 now is the time to register interest pop along to the website academy.bestsellerexperiment.com so mr stay until next week it's a goodbye from mark one and a goodbye from mark two goodbye. A goodbye. Goodbye.